If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites according to a recent Indeed survey. With Indeed, everything hiring is all in one place and it makes it so easy. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences each day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. The more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join the more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Indeed.com slash podcast. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey folks, welcome to the Unsung Podcast. <laughs> Mark, uh, I don't know if listeners know. I don't know if listeners noticed, but uh, the second part of our MF Doom show, you introduced it as though you were doing an impersonation of Kevin Bridges, but you didn't actually say that you were doing an impersonation of Kevin Bridges. Um, were you aware that you'd done that? Yes. <laughs> right. Okay. Craig, yeah, the, the day before, Craig had watched a little bit of his stand up on Amazon. Prime and I was like, this is pretty push. <laughs> do, you want, do you want to do it again on demand to prove you can? Um, Introduce the show again. Hey folks, welcome to the Unsung Podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is pretty, that's pretty much it. Yeah, that's pretty good actually. Uh, yep, how you been? You guys, eh? What about him? Fuck's sake. Oh, these guys, eh? What are you all about, eh? Oh. <laughs> Did you know, yeah. uh, have I told you, I might have told you this story before, but Kevin Bridges once called me a, a little fetus-faced boy once. <laughs> was that at the stand? Uh, no, it was um, at Belladrum Festival. He was, like, performing in the late-night comedy tent. This is, like, before he was famous and... It was after all the music had finished and I was, it had been raining, so I, you know, I had, I did look like I might have just come out of the womb, <laughs> had a hood up, <laughs> and we're all sat on these sofas in this tent waiting for him to come on, and I might have been a little bit pissed, and I went up and did a sort of impromptu, uh, like, dance set with an umbrella on the stage before he came on just to the to the gr- the the 34 people that were in the tent and then he came on while I was dancing and he's like oh who the fuck's this we fierce faced fucking m- boy get off my stage son <laughs> and I went and sat down so that was that was fun have you been apart for that part for your uh, celebrity impersonations mark 
I've been okay, Christopher. Um, I have been <laughs> doing fun things like not going out very much and drinking too much beer and being ill. I was actually ill for a bit. Um, that sucked. And then most recently I watched uh, Big Vinnie Max, House of Beef, the Royal Rumble. Yeah, on Sunday and <laughs> It would be a better name for it That's it was, an amazing name for it <laughs> It was fine I guess <laughs> How about you guys Christopher and David You watched any uh, oiled men Getting to grips with each other Dave uh, Just only in my Afternoon daydreams Just at work <laughs> Yeah exactly <laughs> uh, No n- I, Nothing exciting has happened to me at all I, I bleached my hair this time last year uh, for the first time just because I was mm-hmm. bored and I and you know what you know the rest of the year went so well I've just <laughs> decided it, to do it again because it's it was obviously such a good omen so I'm uh, rocking my um, M&M and 8 Mile vibe right now how are Chose you Chris? A, Chris? me? Yeah, how about are you? you buzzing for this episode? I mean, honestly like um, um, I'm a wee bit I'm a wee bit run down I spent this week looking at spreadsheets and today I was helping move stuff out in office it was tiring but I'm I'm game I will get my energy because this is a big hitter this is one of those when we first conceived of this we were like there's certain names here that are going to make a mark when we drop them and I think Faith No More the subject of today's podcast and probably next week's uh, are one of those names they're they're one of those those big hitters Mm. And I think the album that I've chosen is kind of perfect for for what we do uh, as a podcast as well, because it is an album that sales wise and also reception wise was much more muted than what came before, what propelled them to stardom. But I completely, completely stand by um, my proposition here. Um, So yeah, we're going to talk about King for a Day, Fool for a Lifetime. To give it its full title, uh, which may be abbreviated to King for a Day, or even just King, <laughs> as the podcast grinds on uh, towards its third hour. Um, but yeah, this came out in 1995, and I was not even fully into heavy music at this point. I mean, I was and I wasn't. Um, I was kind of getting to grips with it. I think I was I was 14. It was right in the cusp of when I first started to listen to this kind of stuff. I remember specifically uh, being at a uh, French exchange disco at Sterling Rugby Club. David, I'm sure you've you've have you been there? You've certainly passed by it a number of times. Yeah, I think I went to somebody's birthday party there once. Yeah, so it used to be one of the places in Sterling where you'd have these little parties or events and stuff. And we at our school had a French exchange programme and I remember going there with uh there was only a few of us really that were outliers enough to enjoy this sort of stuff. And there was just a moment during the night Kind of who who was the DJ? It might even have been the great Ewan Duncan of Europa Music in Sterling. It might even have been Ewan. But there was a there was a period uh, during the night where they dropped all the sort of Barbie Girl and Wigfield just briefly, uh, and embarked on like a few songs back to back that were for the moshers. And I specifically remember not even identifying as a mosher at that time, but digging the grave. And Smells Like Teen Spirit came on and I was I was up there. I didn't really even know how to mosh. And we weren't dressed for moshing. We didn't have the hair. Um, we hadn't quite realised who we were 
I think, but it definitely connected. And so that was just as this had come out, and it was right in the cusp of me really fully kind of realising this was the kind of music that I, I really enjoyed. I, I didn't have any older siblings, not many siblings, so I didn't have that kind of advantage of hearing like a an older relative or even a cousin of that playing much stuff to latch on to. So um, yeah, it's, it's actually, it's weird. It's like a really significant record for me in that in that sense. Uh, and it's it's endured really, really fucking well. It's endured as well as most albums from that era for me. Um, I think we've spoken about Live Through This by Hole, which I think's aged really well. Um, obviously a c- couple of the Nirvana things, but even then, I mean, yeah, I don't know. I think I think this album still has a certain freshness and an absurdity to it that that is that's helped it last. Um, I'd be curious to know what your impressions are of it off the bat before we start to dig into the band and the the history. Uh, well, I am a I'm a Faith No More fan. I have been for a while. I first heard Epic on Crying Crying TV like in two thousand and fucking whatever. Probably when they weren't abandoned, they wouldn't have been abandoned anymore at that point because they broke up after uh, the next album for a bit, didn't they? Um, album of the album year, of the year yeah. yeah. So I remember hearing that and thinking that sounds really familiar. That sounds a bit like corn, but not a bit eighties. <laughs> 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 well, we're definitely going to end up touching on the on the new metal uh, aspect. Well, yeah, like they, obviously they're on record as saying that the the new thing is like one of their biggest influences. Uh, but I heard that. You, can I, can I just throw a, a morsel in here? By the way, did you guys know that uh, in February 2020, a month before coronavirus really took off big time, uh, Faith No More announced a co-headlining tour with Corn. Really. Wow. Yeah, that I, was, that I don't was, think I saw that. Fucking hell! That's that's what was meant to be happening right now. The other oh bands God. in the building, the other bands included Helmet. So it was really like a kind of new metal progenitors meet new metal kind of granddaddies. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that was meant to happen. They got announced in February and then clearly didn't happen. But hey, Dave, Christ. could still they could just have been postponed, man. <sighs> well, we can <laughs> hope, <laughs> can but hope. Fucking hell! <laughs> I mean, it's weird. It's weird though, Mark. To think of you getting into, especially Epic, that song in particular, so late because we'll go through their their their, their music, but it's kind of frat rock, you know totally. that, that 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 song. I don't think has aged particularly well. It's got a lot of nostalgia value for people, but I think if you were coming to it cold, I'm surprised that it's one of the ones that really connected. Yeah, and then after that, I started to figure out who they were. I got this is it, which is the greatest hit sort of thing one of the first ones I did the actual good one I guess yeah one of them yeah yeah, and um, I liked a lot of the stuff that was on it uh, Angel Dust fucking great album this album also very good um, I don't think they've really when Mike joined the band I don't think they've actually got a fully bad album but we can talk about that as we go through I think they get patchy mm-hmm. I think they're patchy in a lot of places but I don't think they've ever made a total stinker certainly since Mike's been in the band in my opinion mm-hmm. uh, and more to the point uh since uh, the last month has been fucking great for me because we did MF Doom and we're doing Faith No More, so it's been a really, it's been a really good time. <laughs> Dave, what about Dave. you? Uh, well, I was just trying to remember, and turns out that I got into Faith No More pretty early because I got the Return of the Gladiators on cassette, and that was uh, the second compilation for the Saturday Night UK TV show presented by Ulrika Johnson and John Fashionu. This has been. This has come up before. This is brilliant. Yeah. yeah so it's like a, a 
just a compilation and it was like of uh, all the gladiators soundtracks and entry songs and stuff like that so i mean there's uh, billy ocean when the going gets tough chesney hawks the one and only sister sledge we are family so you know it's got a bit of the soft stuff uh, but i mean it's also got l7 pretend we're dead good under the bridge by chili peppers thin lizzie boys are back in town <laughs> do you remember Green Jelly, Three Little mm-hmm. Pigs. Yeah, absolutely. Little pig, little pig, let me... I fucking love that. Um, <laughs> and it's also got Everything Is Ruined by Faith No More. It's an interesting uh, and choice by Faith No More as well, yeah. you know. Yeah, so that came out in October 93, and I remember I got it on cassette and I fucking loved it. And mm. Everything Is Ruined was one of the standout tracks on that cassette for me as a, what, seven-year-old? <laughs> I mean, it's it's got one of their best choruses in it. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. And then I guess I remember going to Inverness Library and I they used to have like a little, you could borrow a CD for two weeks. And I, um, I was always taken by the King for a Day, Fool for a Lifetime artwork. Like it's, it's pretty fucking it's iconic. It's amazing. Yeah. And I remember getting that album and recording it, recording it onto tape. <laughs> and then I don't know. It never kind of stuck with me. And then when I was about fourteen or fifteen, I then I was a qualified Kerrang reader and mosher, and I went and bought the real thing and Angel Dust on CD. Mm-hmm. And man, I fucking rinsed those albums. I listened to them <laughs> so so much, uh, and then and it, yeah, funnily enough, and I just never got back into King for a Day or Album of the Year or you know the pre mic stuff. Um, to me, Faith No More was always pretty much just those two albums. Mm-hmm. So it's been interesting listening to this with fresh ears and a sort of critical perspective rather than yeah. a teenage just fucking rinsing it. You bring up a couple of interesting points. Um, you mentioned Red Hot Chili Peppers. I, I always associated Faith No More with that kind of funk rock, frat rock movement that went mm. on in the, in the States mm. around about the late 80s, early 90s. And it was kind of going in tandem with the, the hair metal movement, hence why Faith No More ended up touring my Guns and Roses and all this kind of stuff, which we'll touch on. But yeah, like Jane's Addiction and the Red Hot Chili Peppers, Green Jelly, even like Primus, bands like that. It's a sound that I never liked as a kid. When I heard I heard Epic, I'm pretty sure before I heard King for a Day Fool for a Lifetime or Digging the Grave in this case. And it just didn't connect with me. Um I think in a weird way, a lot of early Faith No More stuff sounds almost like they'd tapped into that thing that Queen did on a couple of Queen's kind of standout hits like um We Will Rock You or something like that, where you get a formula that's insultingly sing alongy and simple. So like Epic for me or and they, they do it. They kind of satirise themselves a bit and like be aggressive later on. But it's like that kind of thing where you've got like a simple beat and a sing along chant and a really dumb hook, and it it really worked for Queen in that era. And I felt like Faith No More were sort of like a slightly edgier version of that approach to songwriting, and I never really liked it. And it wasn't until I heard the slightly more complex songwriting of this album, and then going back through, as you say, Angel Dust, and being like, oh right, this isn't just big 
dumb tunes. It's actually some of it's quite dark and some of it's quite complicated. So I never really got into that that uh, that whole frat rock thing they did. And any time they touched on that, it kind of really it kind of turned me off. Um, right, look, we'll, we'll we'll give them some context. We'll give we'll give a wee bit of backstory. All right. So this is a, an amazing fact, and actually something I didn't know until we we started doing this. But in effect, Faith No More formed in 1979. Yeah, that's mad. Like, Forty-two before, years before I was fucking born. They were, like, there's not many bands I can say that about anymore. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but like they formed in 1979, admittedly under the the title Sharp Young Men, um, which I think later was uh, changed to Faith. Full stop. No man. Um, at that time, uh, it was Billy Gould and Mike Borden. Billy's a bass player. Bass player Mike, yep. Mike's a drummer, yep. um, and they were they were playing with Mike Morris on vocals and a guy called Wade Worthington on keys. Long story short, they, like Faith No More are known for people like Mike Patton. They're known for even Chuck Mosley, the the vocalist before Mike Patton. Uh, Roddy Bottom is probably one of the other most kind of like standout characters in the band. But n- none of them were actually there at the very beginning. Um, Faith No Man. Had released a double A side single way 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 back. It was called "Quiet in Heaven," uh, and the the other A side was "Song of Liberty." Songs of Liberty. Um, I had a listen to these actually. They're not not too easy to find, but uh, "Quiet in Heaven" is actually really fucking good. It's quite industrial. Has this really thunky bass sound that Faith No More kind of become known for? Um, it, like, I was I was quite impressed with it. Uh, Song of Liberty is a bit more post-punk and a bit a bit more indie, less industrial, but also kind of decent. Um, as I say, Morris and Worthington were in the band there. Um, I think they'd actually recorded that as Sharp Young Men and then released it as Faith No Man. But uh, Worthington left really soon after that and Roddy Bottom joined at this point. And that's sort of where it starts to become a more definitive lineup. Um, Bottom, Burden, and Guild then quit the band to effectively quit. Uh, Mike Morris, the singer, mm-hmm. you know, it's that kind of like they, they have a like a sort of semi habit of doing this, where they they quit on mass to avoid firing a guy, but they kind of quit the band and then formed Faith No More, even though it was basically the three of them. And it's actually at this point, uh, which is quite a kind of ubiquitous bit of trivia for Faith No More, uh, that they auditioned various singers, including Courtney Love. And she sang in them for a little bit, mm-hmm. a, a really little bit. She's actually really good friends with Roddy Bottom, um, and that'll play a part when we're talking about this album because of the timing uh, in her life. They, obviously, Courtney didn't end up in the band. It ended up being a singer called Chuck Mosley. Uh, around about this time, Jim Martin, their sort of fairly iconic guitarist for a large part of their history, arrived as well. It's interesting. I saw Faith No More uh, on the Word. Uh, with Terry Christian after Mike Patton had thrown a glass of water in his face for getting their names wrong or something um, he, he then went on to just ask them about Courtney Love auditioning for them for most of the interview and it was really quite insulting but there you go Faith No More have got a weird relationship with the media they're a band that just seemed really kind of out of place and out of sorts especially once Patton's in there because he seems quite uncomfortable with it but yeah so they then began once Mosley and Martin were in the band they started to record what became We Care A Lot, uh, but they did it themselves, did it of their own volition, um, and then they were noticed by Mordom Records, 
uh, and they funded the, the completion of the album. Um, and then around about, we'll, we'll talk about this phase in a wee bit more detail, and then around about in 1986 they were signed by Slash Records uh, and started working on Introduce Yourself, which came out in 1987. That included uh, a reworked version of the song We Care A Lot, which was like their earliest sort of hit and that, that actually got some early traction on MTV uh, in 1988 they did a Euro tour uh, during which Chuck Mosley became apparently increasingly problematic there were fights with I, I don't know if it was like his crew uh, fighting with Jim Martin or something like that he fell asleep on stage at the Introduce Yourself album launch uh, he'd suggested you can get away with it. that if you're a bassist or a synth player <laughs> but <laughs> when you're the front man when yeah. you're the singer and he'd, intro- uh, he'd suggested they do like an acoustic record and stuff and basically uh, uh, Billy Gould especially just got sick of it and he quit and then I think it was the day after that uh, Mike Borden and Roddy Bottom called him and, and joined him and so again they quit the singer and they reformed Faith No More basically without Chuck Mosley involved uh, also this is just prior to Mike Patton joining they additioned many other singers including Chris Cornell at this stage which would have been interesting. pretty interesting yeah uh, and then in 88 they hired Mike Patton, who was a singer of Mr. Bungle at the time, and I think I think it was uh, Billy Gould, or maybe it was even Jim Martin, had heard one of his demos. No, I think it was Jim Martin had heard one of his demos and suggested them. Now, I, I know we're, we're, we're skimming through that just to give a wee bit of context, but um, we did say for this podcast we were going to try and stick to Faith No More, and we're not going to deviate into all the many, many, many side projects of Mike Patton. I mean, we've um, already done a Tomahawk episode. Yeah, we did it. Yeah, we did a Tomahawk episode, and, and we'll probably end up doing at least one of his other acts at some point as well because he, he does have a lot of quality stuff. Um, we will give passing mention at this point, I think, to Jim Martin, who, <laughs> um, following his dismissal, went on and did some uh, not yeah. amazing. Stuff including this, record. Uh, the uh, Milk and Blood album is fucking honking under his own name. so bad recorded so badly as well it's just a horrible stodgy mellow thrash album that sounds like I don't know, it sounds like a drunk Lars Ulrich drumming on it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, a slight, slightly better was what Roddy Bottom had been working on. He was a member of a band called Imperial Teen, which was a good band in its own right. Uh, kind of like an indie band. You know, at times they sound like a kind of weird, a weird cross of like Bell and Sebastian and the Dandy Warhols, and then at other times they've got stuff that's just a little bit, a little bit more gnarly with like hints of Sonic Youth or Super Chunk in it. It's actually something that's pretty good. They, they had a record that came out in '96 that's pretty highly rated as well. And Roddy Bottom is just a really interesting character, generally speaking. Um, I, I'm so slightly skeptical, although. Given it, having given it a quick glance, it sort of seems like it might be true. Roddy Bottom was the first openly gay kind of modern heavy rock metal musician. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right? that's and right. Yeah, and in 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 ninety three, and I've I've read some really interesting interviews with him about that. 
Um, I'd, I'd actually wondered when it was that Rob Halford came out. Uh, that wasn't until fucking 1998. Yeah. Um, so Roddy Bottom is out there uh, on his own. Can we just obviously take a moment to reflect on the obviously quite amusing fact that he's called Roddy Bottom mm-hmm. and he was the first gay metal and rock musician. I don't think even he would grudge us that moment. Um, but yeah, really, really fascinating. It gave Faith No More a kind of like... It sounds really crap in in hindsight, seeing as this is something we take for granted so much now, but it gave them a sort of subversive quality. Like they weren't this macho, groupy fucking metal band. There was something sort of slightly edgier and, and they just never really fitted with the other, you know, peers of the metal scene at that time. And, and likewise, Patton didn't really seem to buy into that. I've read really interesting interviews with him talking about how absurd they found the whole notion of groupy culture that they just... They just never really... He said he saw plenty of other bands, including bands they were on the road with doing it, but to them it just seemed like those bands hadn't been hugged enough as children. It just seemed kind of pathetic. So immediately, like from an early era, they're they're a really interesting band and definitely outliers. Um, I do want to say, dropping Faith No More on the podcast could be definitely be seen as pandering a little bit. I know for a fact we've got some listeners that are big fans and it's been a name that's come up and comments and correspondence uh since pretty much since we started this um i am not even remotely interested in being your pal here guys i think the first two albums by faith no more are insufferably bad yeah like <laughs> dreadful really dreadful fucking horrendous truly dreadful. Like, like horrendous i understand that there's probably a few of you are incredibly attached to them and shed a wee tear uh, for the original version of We Care A Lot or whatever, but seriously, you need to get a fucking grip. They are absolutely fucking honking. Even just the, the way they're recorded is, is, is horrible. I think like funk rock generally is a total abomination. I think Chuck Mosley was a hack, a really poor vocalist. Um, there's a track called um, The Crab Song on Introduce Yourself that is just astonishing how bad it is. Like total trash. The vocals in it are hellish. It's got this like weird sub alt metal croon thing going on in it. Yeah, uh, really, really, really fucking awful <laughs> in the early days. And I remember when I got into King uh, King for a day, trying to do my due diligence and go back and find stuff. And I think I just you know maybe just accidentally picked up those records and was fucking appalled, appalled. Am I am I alone in this? No, no, not at all. They're both dreadful mm. albums. I, I think, yeah, I think the first record is dreadful. I introduce yourself has redeeming features, um, although I do actually think that Chuck's vocals are what makes it irredeemable. Um, I saw somebody compare these two records to Paul Diano on the first two Iron Maiden records, but Paul Diano had fucking character. He was still a good vocalist. He could sing it in tune, and it suited that because it was just like lended 
uh, a bit more of a punkier vibe whereas this he was just literally just out of tune on these two records <laughs> um i don't know i like introduce yourself i think it's got some it starts off fairly decent and i think we, we care a lot is a good faith no more song but yeah it 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 doesn't stand up overall it's not it's it's definitely not a good record There's a kind of really bizarre sort of 90s combination of Will Smith meets Sparks meets Devo at this kind of point of Faith No More as well that keeps cropping up. It's really odd kind of comedy jock metal. I can't get with it at all. A track called The Jungle. Uh, yeah, I think it's The Jungle on We Care A Lot, which is just synth rock at its absolute worst, like pure mince. Pure fucking mince, it's embarrassing. Um, so yeah, if if that's a problem for you and you're listening and you expected this to be pandering sycophancy, it's, it's not going to happen. Because I do think Faith No More have made a, a, a number of missteps. The early years are, yeah, inexplicable to me. Um, then there's a watershed moment. Mike Patton joins. And I want to be clear here as well, a bit like Faith No More, I'm not, I'm not one of these people that thinks Mike Patton can do no wrong. Uh, I've I've seen and heard Mike Patton do plenty wrong. I think hopefully that that was clear from our Tomahawk episode. You know, I think he's he's a guy that's full of ideas and not all of them come off. Uh, sometimes he's just a confusing character as well. You know, because I mean, like Tourin McCorn, he seems so much like a guy that doesn't take the industry particularly seriously. He seems he has a bit of the kind of Steve Albini's about him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, they toured with Limp Biscuit as well. I I just. Yeah, I don't see it. But anyway, things really, really do change when Mike Patton joins the band. They're already quite an eclectic band. Their singer certainly didn't have the range or the ability to do even the basics, arguably, let alone anything more adventurous. Patton blows open the possibilities of what they can do as a group, but also, as is evidenced by Mr Bungle, has his own very, very eccentric ideas and, and directions that he wants to go in. So he makes an eclectic band more eclectic, I think, and generally improves the quality of their product, allows the other players and writers to really try things they weren't capable of with it, with, it, with the previous uh, setup. I will say, though, he does also spend the first three years singing through his nose far too fucking often. <laughs> I, I hate that voice. I hate it when Patton does the nose voice. It fucking kills me. He's an amazing singer, and that's like like tracks like Epic. It just it totally grates. But 
the real thing is clearly um, an order of magnitude, at least an order of magnitude more accomplished uh, of an album than uh, Introduce Yourself. Actually, I got a Grammy nomination, I think. Yeah, uh, Epic did. Uh, the album did, yeah. Mm-hmm. For million sales. And as you say, Epic was a fucking huge, huge hit. Mm-hmm. Like, I think it's pretty it, incredible that the record was already written and he just came in and did everything in two weeks. Like, it's fucking insane. Like, he, he, he literally crafted hooks for vocals out of nowhere. Yeah. You know, which I think is a true testament. From, from out talent. of nowhere. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <But> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, a lot of those songs have three or four big hooks in each track like there's a reason that it you know went mainstream because it's just fucking catchy as hell and it's kind of got this cross genre cross generational thing that's just like quite i don't know they just sound like a vital young band that are producing big fucking hits Um, yeah i mean epic i mean it was a a kind of mtv botherer as well even though they they got they got loads of hassle for the video because of the the fish suffocating in it the kind of comedy funk vibes in Epic actually never really worked for me. And I always wondered in, in later years if Patton actually liked that song, because it doesn't seem like a song he'd be particularly fond of, despite the fact I'm sure he's expected to sing it. it the lyrics, Faith No More frequently do this thing where I can't tell, certainly earlier on, where I can't tell how ironic they are or are not being, how mm. self-aware they are or are not being. You know, lyrics like, so groovy, it's out of sight. I'm sure to some extent is Mike Patton, well, I'm confident to some extent is Mike Patton being ironic, but I'm not entirely sure at this stage of this band, if you know what I mean. I think I think their, their, their tongue-in-cheek uh, sense of humour, their approach becomes more obvious later on as they get more self, self-referential and, and, and a bit better. They kind of hone the, the, the sarcasm a little bit better uh, lyrically and just, you know, even like some of their compositions in their enti- in their entirety seem quite sarcastic. The fact that they covered Easy, for example. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh, it's why but lyrically, I mean, that's something that links Patton to last episode and MF Doom is that he has admitted that sometimes he just uses words that sound nice. You know, it's not necessarily about the meaning of the lyric, it's about the sound of the word. Yeah. Yeah, he was pretty reluctant to talk about lyrics in interviews. I know he used to change the subject to animal porn, mm-hmm. masturbation, scat, uh, scatology, anything he could to basically avoid sort of uh, an autopsy on, he, on his lyricism. So he has on record as saying that he didn't really take lyrics seriously as a, as a as a writer when he was in Mr. Bungle, but he started doing an English literature degree, or maybe he was about to finish one, one or the other, when he joined Faith No More, and he presented them with a bunch of lyrics, and apparently some of them were like two out there, just mm-hmm. they felt as though they were a bit too extreme, and then Matt Wallace, the producer, had to actually ask him to rein it in a little bit. <laughs> but I think I think it's entirely possible that he was that he just was taking a piss. Like he get he get ripped for he get ripped off a Anthony Kiedis from uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers for stealing his vibe, which is there's nothing <laughs> less true in the entire world <laughs> because he dresses he dresses a bit like him in the Epic video and he raps on a song. You know you got you got to think that he's looking at the landscape and going, "Fuck this shit." <laughs> you know, what I mean? um, there's some other big songs in that as well. I mean, from out of nowhere, as we say, is a total banger. It's a really, really great intro. Yeah. You know, 
just super super energetic although I think his, his voice in it again kills me um, and falling to pieces Again, nasal, but hell of a good chorus. Mm-hmm. There's also some really eclectic stuff in this, and I think it sort of foreshadows what was to come. The, the, the woodpe- uh, Woodpecker from Mars track. Is, is an important track I think in, in the history of what they were doing and even the last one End of the World I think foreshadows a lot of that soft lounge thing that they would start to fuck around with later on And do you um, know what? See, Edge of the World, I mean, maybe it's like the same sort of time. Is it Edge or is it End? Edge, edge. of the World, sorry. Edge of the World. Um, it's the same era, and to me it has the same sort of mainstream crossover, but outsider status and kind of surreal imagery as Twin Peaks. And I feel mm-hmm. like Faith No More yeah. and you know, like David Lynch have a sort of similar right. vibe to them. Yeah, the cherry pie, the coffee, the... You, yeah, the, the FBI sort of suits thing. Yeah, you're Aye. right. It's got that weird suave dissonance to mm. it. Yeah. So it was around about this time as well, between this and the album that followed Angel Dust, that they, they went on this infamous tour with Guns N' Roses and Metallica, which is fucking riddled with stories. I mean, they, they did a bunch of the, the big tours. They, they toured Billy, Billy Idol at one point as well. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I mean, there's so many stories. This is like peak faith no more in terms of journalism as well. They became darlings because they were interesting. They had a lot mm-hmm. of weird stuff going on. Um, around about this sort of 88 to 92 period, there were all the stories of drinking bottles of piss on stage in Seville that were that had been thrown at them. Mike Patton going up on top of Axel Rose's monitor to drink this bottle of piss. Um, there was the, the shit terrorism. Have you heard about this? Yeah. Mike, Mike, yeah, Mike Patton became I mean he references it in Cuckoo for Cacao in the album we're going to talk about but it was all about his his fascination with the uh, potential and opportunities presented by human feces <laughs> for, for for mischief such as balling it up and putting it in a hairdryer for the next uh, resident to discover there was a story went about for ages that he'd shat in a carton of orange juice and then put it back into Axl Rose's personal vending machine but apparently that's actually not true it's a sort of Chinese whispers adaptation of something that happened on a tour with L7 who I think they were really quite friendly with and quite close to quite fond of but yeah I think he'd, he'd shat in a carton of OJ in the L7 tour because he'd been challenged by one of the, their band that they were like Mike it's been a very quiet boring tour so far so he decided taking it up the ante a wee bit <laughs> um, he apparently used to uh, take diuretics before he went on stage he'd drink shitloads of coffee and take diuretics and then fill up a jug of piss and then throw it over the audience and it was like it was people off stage that had spotted what he was doing and were like freaking out going is he really going to fucking do that and he was like tossing it over the crowd uh, what else did they do at this point he, he used to carry a, a voodoo doll on tour called Toodles <laughs> such a fucking weird band and like absolute dynamite if you're a writer Totally fucking yeah. like gold. 
so yeah, before they brought out Angel Dust, though, they did a Live at Brixton album, which uh, if you get it on video, it's called You Fat Bastards. <laughs> uh, VHS, that'll be, guys, just if you're if you're looking for it. Uh, there's also a, a Faith No More You Fat Bastards t-shirt, a uh, limited edition t-shirt out there. Um, some total belters in that. That was, uh, I think, the version of Zombie Eaters on that is better than the album version. Mm, and uh, War Pigs is so legendary. Good. So good. Um, there's also a track in it called the, the Cowboy Song, which hadn't really, uh, had never been released anywhere else. Uh, and it's actually pretty decent. It's pretty strong, certainly compared to other earlier tracks. And then in 92, uh, Angel Dust, which I, I don't think we could have made a case for being unsung. Um, no, I don't it's think so. su- such a revered album. Like, it really is such a revered album. Mm-hmm. Um, era-defining in a lot of ways. Probably the album that did more to shape new metal than almost any other. Not necessarily in its sound, because it took the funk rock and made it kind of dark. Made it really quite sinister in places. Mm-hmm. Um but then it also had this effect of making Faith more really credible. I think a lot of press, in particular, were on the fence with them around about the time of the real thing. They were still a big sort of arena band. They were doing that, as you said, the comparisons with Red Hot Chilies and stuff. They were doing funk rock and they were a little bit... There was a lot of frat boy sort of stuff happening in the band. This was darker. It was creepier. It was weirder. It was more unsettling. The title of the album, The Swan on the cover, which is totally iconic. This is the point that like magazines like NME picked up on them. And that, that that's significant, at least from a British perspective, because NME was a kind of hipster indie kind of cool magazine and it, you know they kind of sniffed it a lot of metal metal was seen as being kind of stupid and, and beneath them they very rarely covered it unless it was from that sort of weird fly in the wall perspective of I don't know tourism or something like that but with Faith No More they seemed actually quite into Faith No More they had like that edge that made them somewhat credible and I think that came at this point um it, it got it, it basically cleared out some of the cobwebs I think of the pantomime and the kind of naff funk of the kind of Mosley era mm-hmm. like it, re- it really swept that away I mean the tracks in this Dave I'm sure you could go through them at, at, at length I always thought Midlife Crisis was an absolute standout a screamer man Yeah, midlife crisis is amazing. I mean, do you know it's interesting? Like going through it critically, you realise that like some songs don't necessarily go anywhere, but they're all about mood and ambience, and yeah, like, that's true. Like that's cranking true. up the weirdness. Mm-hmm. Um, all of their albums are like, too long. I think even the, even the great ones are too long. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean they always they had this uh, thing of you know, or certainly on these two records of sticking on. You know, like the covers at the end. You know, on this mm. you had Midnight Cowboy, and then they put on Easy in nineteen ninety three as well, which is Huge kind of iconic. Great, like yeah, they yeah. did it really well, and it works. But yeah, you're probably what? What is it about fifty five minutes long? Probably this record. Oh no, an hour, an hour. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, like I, I fucking love this record, but there's there's probably some fat to be cut off it. 
Yeah. I, I will say that the, the thing is, as you say, a lot of the songs are on here for colour, but see, some of them for me are some of their best works because, like, the likes of RV, yeah. the fourth one, mm. so weird that kind of like sort of spoken, drawled narrative. Yeah. My I mean, it's just Patton, you can really see him sort of starting to, to, to make his impression at this point. And you probably hear a lot of Roddy Bottom as well, because that's kind of more in keeping with what he ended up doing with Imperial Teen. But I mean, I think that's a big song in their arsenal because of what it enabled later on. Uh, Smaller and Smaller is one of those tunes that I think is just really there for, like, vibe. Everything's Ruined is a huge chorus. I mean, that is like yeah. maybe their best chorus. It's a fucking absolutely brilliant song, and I love the video for that. The video for that, that that song was one of the things that really made me switch on to Faith No More. Yeah. And realise they were something different. They mock themselves so well in that video. You know, it's so nice to see a, a, a big band that has a nice sense of its own, uh, the, the absurdity of its own situation. I, I think it's fucking mm-hmm. brilliant. Um, malpractice on that. Starts like fucking Melvin's. It is literally starts like a track off the darkest Melvin's album. Um, it gets really goth. Loads of synth in it as well. This is still the period when Roddy Bottom was really, really prominent. Be aggressive. I think is a really, really significant song in the band's history. It's again a bit like I was saying about that Queen thing, where you get like the vocal chant. But it seems to be again quite self-referential. It's like a cousin of We Care a Lot. You know what I mean? It's got that kind of group shout thing, but it's it's much more I don't know, it's much more sinister. It, funnily enough, Roddy Bottom get interviewed many times about being a, a homosexual man coming out so early and being out there on his own. Be aggressive, he wrote the lyrics to that and, song. And the music yeah. as well. Um, he's a soul he's a soul writer for that song. And he that uh, that part, I swallow, I swallow. He was like, yeah, that's that's meant to mean exactly what it means. Mm-hmm. He was like trying to kind of be really confrontational. He's, he wanted to demonstrate to people that he hadn't been hiding. He had, it wasn't like he came out and he'd been trying to keep it a secret. He hadn't been trying to keep it a secret. It had just uh, it had just become knowledge, uh, wider knowledge, when the band had become more prominent. Um, and that's I think that's a, an important tune for him in that mm-hmm. sense. And I'm sure for. <laughs> A number of of many many gay metal fans, uh, whether they were aware they were gay or not at that point, um, a small victory I think could easily have been in King for a Day. Uh, it's the one that sounds the most like like like, like the future. My favourite song on and that album is a small victory.
Yeah, it's yeah. mine too. Because there's something really, I don't know, nostalgic and euphoric about mm-hmm. it. It's mm-hmm. not like necessarily that heavy a song, but it's just fucking no, it's quite optimistic and naive and nostalgic. And you can imagine like cruising about the early 90s in LA, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, guilt free. I love it. See the percussive nature of the vocals in it at the end. It's it's so good. The multi vocal takes are oh very, yeah, very that's fucking brilliant. Yeah, um, and Jizz Lobber, a big song for the band actually. Right. Like J- Jim Martin, really going to town on the metal side of it. You know, they were really big fans of Metallica. I think they actually got on really well with Metallica. They did not get on with Guns and Roses on the road. That that much was made very very clear. But Metallica and them seemed to go on pretty well, and they were a metal band. And certainly Jim Martin mm-hmm. was a metal guitarist. But that, that song was actually a song that they said they weren't really able to do it when they were doing the stadium tours, when they were doing the kind of Guns N' Roses tours. It was too heavy for the crowd. It really it really didn't work. But as soon as they went and did their own headline shows, that was the first one in the team sheet, if you will. It was the first one that they added because they had the ability to do it uh, and it get a proper reception. Yeah. Um, it's also a song where for the first time you hear Mike Patton cutting loose with his vocals it's fucking minging the vocal take on that song it's ferocious <laughs> he, he does that screaming snarling thing that like you realise what a good heavy vocalist he was uh, and he just really emphasises it in that um, curiously though Jim Martin left because of this well, album that's he, he not did, entirely true well, they left him, he he left them. That, that, that's sort of un, undecided. What he did do was he said that he, this album sounded like gay disco uh, and he was not a fan of the direction that's that the writing was going That's also not true. Uh, I can oh, really? up, yeah. So it was very published. So this is from an interview that I did Loudwire a few years ago. Um, my publicised not being into Angel Dust was all about the way the process went down. There was a lot of weird pressure to follow up the new thing and as a consequence he felt it was very contrived musically than he thought was necessary. He wanted more of the record to happen in the studio and uh, Bill Wallace wanted every last track nailed down before we went in. Uh, he wanted to spend time with it. The management and the record company wanted to rush out of the door. There were journalists all over the place they were, and they were paying for samples that they could have just created. Matt Wallace kept phoning him to complain about Mike Patton's vocal performance. Uh, management kept phoning him uh, to talk about Mike Patton's desire for outside projects. And then the record company said to, said to them all in the studio, I hope nobody's bought houses because um, <laughs> they were like that's when reality slaps you in the face and the pressure was on and everybody wanted to be in the studio while I recorded endlessly tinkering and fucking with me and Matt is already a really fucking wound up guy uh, prior to this album I would work alone with Matt and his assistant engineer period I had to kick everyone out of the studio and piss everyone off even though we'd done it before but live performances were always great from my perspective they came across a lot heavier than the records over time things would change progressions and arrangements would morph in subtle ways it would make the set heavier than the studio version so he said there's a lot of bullshit in the press and there was a lot of negativity and he tried to avoid being part of it by refusing to do interviews but he was generally unhappy with the way decisions were being made it would prove damaging to Faith No More which is why he left It's in, it's interesting because Patton I'm pretty sure it was Patton and Gould were interviewed about Jim as I understood it, he was just generally unhappy with the musical direction as mm. well. 
Um, and when you hear what he went on to do, it certainly tracks that he had other ambitions musically and they fucking suck. <laughs> and uh, like, I'm, I'm not surprised if the band were, band and him were diverging based on where the two products went. Um, so I'd, okay, yeah, maybe there's some ambiguity. I mean, that's the thing with Faith No More. In almost any of their breakup stories, there's a lot of ambiguity. But certainly the versions of it that I've heard about Jim Martin, other than that one, do seem to track. But then, as you say, maybe there's, well, there almost certainly is another well, side. Well, he says, um, quite I'm really happy with the way Angel Dust is now regarded and, and how positive it's regarded. That's quite an affirmation of the legacy that we work to create. Um, I'm aware that lots of newer bands have info have said have have noted Faith No More as an influence, and I'm also aware that it's regarded as one of the most influential albums of all time. Um, he's not surprised um, by it, but he says I don't think anyone can t- anticipate something like that. But he's not surprised by the legacy that mm. it's created. It's interesting as well because I don't think we'll really talk about this, but he he heard King for a day and thought that's too much Mike, that's too much of a Mike project. So he was mm-hmm. he was like it's not really faith no more to me. So he obviously left at the right time because um, it was going another direction. He obviously wasn't very interested in. But it mm. does it does seem like there was a bit of friction between him and Mike Patton though in terms of their musical inclinations. Mm. But I think Jim is a bit of a stodgy cornball dinosaur yeah. in a yeah. lot of ways. I mean, certainly the, the what's it the behemoth the, what the project that he did, which is like southern what it, what do you call it like redneck metal or redneck oh, I can't remember what redneck sludge or something like that it's, I mean it's fucking it sucks actually it's really what I've seen of it it's, it's, it's honking so I, I can understand if Mike Patton was looking for something leaner and a bit edgier and he'd seen that it, it was really working as the band got darker and a bit more uh, earnest a bit less pantomime and maybe Jim just didn't fancy that. Like it does It does seem to come across from the interviews that him and Mike didn't go on. I think the irony was that it was Jim that had originally heard Patton's demo and sort of brought him into the band. But yeah, I, d- I don't miss Jim Martin in Faith No More. I really don't. Um, yeah. I mean, so, I mean you, you're probably right. If King Freddy is almost certainly a more Mike Patton-esque record. But for me, clearly, from, from my perspective, it's, it's for the better. Um it's interesting that when Jim left, two of the people that got auditioned, uh, Jordy Walker from Killing Joke and Justin Broderick from Godflesh. That would have been fucking beefy mm-hmm. if Justin Broderick especially yeah. had joined the band. They could have seen them definitely going in a slightly more industrial direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably King for a Day would have sounded quite different. Uh, but uh, like when Trace Bruins came in, at least to record King for a Day, he and Mike already had a relationship from being in uh, Mr. Bungle, mm-hmm. so that really helps as well. But yeah, so 1995 is when they brought out King for a Day. Um, and I mean, that's probably a good time to break. Uh, because we've only got a couple of records to cover after that, and then we'll get into the nitty gritty of of this album itself. What do you think? I'm into it. Yes, I'm into it. That sounds good. Mm-hmm. I mean, the thing about talking about King for a Day Full for a Lifetime is it's like talking about ten albums because there's like ten different fucking sounds at least on this record. So yeah, there's probably quite a lot to get through. Um, I guess just to leave off on that, I think like as I said, for me coming to Faith No More. I was most enamoured with this edgy, lean, much more sinister latter-day band. And 
I hated the early stuff. Uh, I will say, like, Goldilocks zone-wise, I can understand, Dave, why you're so, so into Angel Dust and Real Thing. It is like a, it is a sort of, well, certainly commercially, a much more successful symbiosis of the two sort of, uh, uh, of the two sensibilities that that existed within the band, I definitely, I think you guys could probably have guessed that the later stuff would probably appeal to me more anyway, just given the kind of stuff that I listen to. It's a bit more alt rock, mm-hmm. isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's so many great moments, certainly in the real thing and Angel Dust. I think they're fantastic albums. I don't think Angel Dust would have been a contender just because it is so revered. Um, yeah, I think things. I think the real thing is you know a big pop rock alternative rock record and I don't think it's underrated and I don't think yeah. the Angel Dust is either because it's seen as a alternative metal classic so yeah aye and the first two are humming yeah. so yeah. this far <laughs> this far everyone checks out okay doke guys well I'm into it uh, looking forward to coming back and talking more about these mad fucking shit terrorists uh, one more th- <laughs> one more thing before we leave this episode is uh, we know that sometimes we talk about this Patreon thing that we have right and If you want to to donate to that, then you can. But sometimes we also know that long-term commitments are maybe not for everyone, and that's totally fine. So as of, well, I guess, as of you hearing this episode, if you go to unsungpod.net forward slash donate, you can either sign up to our Patreon or you can just chuck us a few quid in a tip jar, buy us a coffee or something. It can be any any amount that you want. Um, So if you go to unsungpod.net forward slash donate, you can chuck some money our way either on an ongoing basis or just on a one-off. And finally, finally, big hello to John Kumiske, who is our new subscriber. Your um, benefits are in the ether. (laughs) 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 They're they're, they're in the Brexit post, so sorry, mate. It could be months. (laughs) Uh, All right, team. See you next week. Uh, I'll actually see you in four minutes after I do a pee, but I'll see everybody else (laughs) listening. (laughs) next week (laughs) fairly well